Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Stack, with the highlights of the Monaco Media Summit that happened in London earlier this week. Among the highlights, journalist and broadcaster Christine Ocran, Finnish news anchor Matti Ronka, BBC News presenter Michel Hussein, Zeit Magazine's Christoph Armand, Jeremy Leslie, Clarissa Ward and Peter York. A packed show for sure. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, Monaco's Tyler Brulé, Andrew Tuck, and Tom Edwards spoke to journalist and broadcaster Christine Ocran. Andrew, maybe we'll start with you to, I, I guess, a little bit of an ambition for the next three hours, but um, how you see the landscape at the moment. Part of this, of course, today is a celebration of 10 years of, of broadcast, but when you look at the, the state of, of media, maybe what do you want to hear or be reflecting on over drinks by, by 6.30 or so? Well, as an editor, what I hope is that we get to talk about something called stories and reporting, because I think over the last 10 years, we've heard too much of this word content, and there's been a notion that what we're producing as journalists, as photographers, as people out in the field, is just so much filler to go in between the gaps on the internet between ads and, and not really a, anything of value. And I think that what I want to come back to is the notion of what, what makes people pick up a magazine, go onto a website to read a newspaper. How do you engage with people and how do you come good on the promise of, of what journalism should be, which is delivering truths and looking at things that we, we all want to know about. Tom? Yeah, I guess one of the things that I'm most enthusiastic about is reassessing this idea that when people talk about traditional media, there's a temptation, I think, among some to use it pejoratively. And actually, the traditional values of journalism, storytelling, uh, making a real investment, not just financial, in crafting those stories and building real communities and relationships with your readers, listeners, viewers, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort. And I think it's been an interesting moment to reflect 10 years into Monocle 24 as well, as almost 15 years of Monocle, what value you can deliver if you take that more long-term view. Christine, it's, it's wonderful to, to have you here. And you're part of the founding family of Monocle 24. You were there in the very early days. You are, of course, a journalist and broadcaster that many of us have grown up with. It was crucial that uh, you became part of that moment to infuse not just a sense of the continent, but I think really having a global view on things to, you know, we talk increasingly about this, this Anglosphere, this sort of discussion that is only happening uh, in the English world, and then we see the power and, and sometimes also just the alternative view, and I say alternative in a positive way, of the French media. But maybe just give us a little bit of a snapshot, just even rewinding to the start of, of, of France 24, how, you, how you've seen the landscape changing and maybe also setting us up for some topics we want to discuss today. But yeah, what you see as challenges, whether within a French or European or even global context. Well, I believe that the challenges are pretty much the same. You know, the channel isn't that wide after all, except in some people's minds, unfortunately. <laughs> By the way, it's wonderful to be back in London. It was a strange feeling, actually, at Garde du Nord, you know, and sort of feeling like going into another universe. Anyway. Um, <laughs> No, I think it's pretty much the same. I, I think we, we've also gone through this, the same uh, symptoms, uh, being obsessed with technology 
and forgetting that what matters is actually stories, good stuff, good stuff to look at, good stuff to read, good stuff to listen to. And I think that uh, what has also uh, showed, and, and probably uh, the COVID moment uh, has uh, increased that awareness, is that we need strong brands. We need brands in the media, just like in any other aspects of our consumption, uh, even politics, I'm afraid. And so the idea that uh, with all these uh, conspiracy theories, with all the, the garbage that goes on in the social media and so on and so forth, the only way uh, to get through, and it works, is to build on strong brands. And I think the event this afternoon is very much to the credit of the brands uh, you three have been able to uh, develop. We get to see lots of owners of French newspapers and editors of French newspapers, and we're always struck by a, a slightly more positive conversation about how they're engaging with readers, a, a newspaper like Les Echo. Is that unusual that actually the newspapers are doing so well at this time? Is it, is, is it a benefit, oddly, of these difficult times that people are returning to newspapers? Why do you think the news brands feel a little bit stronger in Paris at the moment? I think pretty much the same way our economies are picking up. I think there's an appetite, obviously, on the ad advertising side, but also I think there's energy <laughs> that hasn't been really uh, used up or consumed, you know, for two years, and, and it's out there. And uh, I think also, at least in Paris, all these uh, papers, editors, broadcasters have been humbled by a, a course of events which got totally out of hand and which nobody had forecast, obviously. And I think, again, as you, Andrew, pointed out, that the, the need to provide interesting stuff. And I'm particularly interested and fascinated with the, the boost for radio. Radio, which was supposed to be, you know, really the obsolescent media, the old one, uh, uh, with, with there, the technology hasn't enslaved us, quite on the contrary. It has given people much more freedom to choose and select. And the, the particular channel I work for, which is France Culture, uh, which is the, you know, eyebrow which was supposed to be so boring. Well, first of all, it's not boring. And second, we have increased our impact in incredible numbers, you know, like 4% a year. Why? Because I think that people are aware that just skimming over stories is just not good enough. And that is something which I think is good for all of us. That was Christine Ocon, and what an afternoon it was. To continue now, we also learned what makes an anchor. We spoke with Finnish journalist and anchor Mati Ronka and BBC News presenter Michal Hussein. Michelle, I'm going to start with you. It's, it's sort of, it's a loaded question, but is there still a role for the singular anchor in the evening or around a microphone in the morning at a time when we can go to a variety of different outlets, channels, screens, of course, uh, for a, a, a conversation for information? I really hope so. But I think, I'd, I don't think it has to be a single news anchor. I mean, I think there's a, both of us work in public service broadcasting. And I know you'll be talking about that later with Peter, but 
I'm always very conscious that the, the privilege of, of being the anchor, it is a privilege. It's also a role that has a lot of jeopardy in it. You know, if something goes wrong, as it often does, as I'm sure you and I both know all too well, you're the one who's not going to carry the can editorially, hopefully, at least not in the British context, but you're the one with egg on your face. And so, but, but in a way, that's, that's the best of it also, because you, I feel that over the course of your career, you kind of have to carry that thrill about what you do, but also that jeopardy and risk in what you do, because you never want to be in that position where you're thinking, oh, well, here I am, I've got a big audience, I don't have to worry about anything else, I know I can do this, and you start going through the motions. So I think that, yes, of course, I hope that, that, that the place that we have is certainly under more threat than it's ever been, I would say, in our, in our careers, but I hope there's still a place for it, but there's a way to do it that doesn't take it for granted. Matti, what do you think about that? If we look at, for example, the rise of social media, do you, do you think that's been doing something to the authorities newsreaders and new anchors have nowadays on television, for example? Yes, it certainly has done a lot of harm and a lot of damage. But, well, the COVID time, it has brought back a lot of my belief in, in traditional journalism. And we have had, you know, enormous crowds at the television. First they look, they watch the six o'clock half an hour news, then maybe the government's uh, info live for one or two hours, and then the main newscast, and then the current affairs, like they have uh, really big troubles, you know, watching too much. But at the same time, talking about COVID, for example, you do have those people online who are saying that they don't want to watch television news, for example, because they say they want to do their own research. Yeah. How often are you faced with that? Well, very often, very often, because, well, I, uh, I'm in the social media as well, so it ends up uh, with, with suspense, uh, and, 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 and it's, it's I'm, I'm 62 years old, and, and I'm really, it, it, it's painful when somebody says that you are willingly telling lies, and of course, my colleague says that don't bother. That's only, it's nothing. But it really hurts. It's like a, a school kid getting mucked. Do you respond? Yes, I do. I, well, during, during the dark hours of night. I, 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 I <laughs> Always do. the best time. I do, you know, after, <laughs> after a glass of blended scotch. So. <laughs> Michelle, do you, do you respond well, as well? Because I, mean, I guess that's the, what, is, what is that boundary to say, yeah. I just can't in, engage because it's too hateful, that, too ugly? That's or, why I was interested in yeah. how Matty approaches it. Because, the I mean, it's not that I never respond, but the vast majority of the time, if I have responded, I look back and think that is time I will never get back. And, um, you know, that it really that it really wasn't worth it. And in the context that, that, you know, the BBC is in, then it becomes a story in itself, and you can probably do without that as well. So I think generally not. But of course, COVID, you know, everywhere has brought big, bigger audiences to news. And I think that it has really, it's good for all of us also to be reminded, why did we choose this yeah. life, this yeah. profession? Why do we do what we do? And, you know, the morning after the first lockdown, I was going to work at the Today program, and it was just such a, everything about it was so bizarre, you know, hardly anyone in the building, you know, everything changing overnight, and and thinking, I need to ask some really basic questions of the government on air this morning, like, you know, the shops are closed, is it still okay, even on, on the, I remember asking, is it okay, what are we allowed to buy online? It wasn't even clear that you were allowed to, you know, buy toys or anything that wasn't an essential 
online. I mean, the, mo the most sort of the kinds of questions you never thought you would be asking, and, and there you were. So the public service part of it really, you know, never felt more important as it did I was, then. I was uh, during the anchoring shift when, when Finland got its lockdown, and I, I was able to say those historical words that this is something that haven't happened after the Second World War. So the, this is something big. And it's a bizarre thing that this work is the most, it's most enjoyable when the things that you're telling or reporting are the worst possible. <laughs> and so like you're, you're delivering the, the, you know, the death message. And at the same time, you feel proud that, okay, they count on us and our team is able to do it in a proper way. And it, it, the, the, the days that, you know, are quiet and everything goes smoothly, they are dull. But I don't want to have a, not a, a single more crisis. No, I, I don't hope. I've, I've seen them enough. Thank you to both Marty and Michelle. The third panel is about something the most stuck listeners hold dear to their hearts, the newsstand. To talk about the reinvention of the newsstand, no better guest than Christoph Armand of Zeit Magazine and Jeremy Leslie from Mag Culture. Let's just start off with a, maybe a bit of an optimistic moment because we're keeping things decidedly analogue and we're going to be talking about newsstand. But worry, I know, Christoph, you've got a yet more new additions to the Zeit magazine stable, which is obviously hugely, hugely exciting. Do we find you in an upbeat and optimistic frame of mind at the moment? Oh, absolutely. It was actually my first time back in London since the pandemic hit. And when I arrived here yesterday, I, I already felt so happy. I uh, just took a run through Hyde Park and, and was just very happy to be back here. And um, yes, I mean, it's been a crazy time, right? Those 18 months. And I, I remember when the pandemic or the first lockdown hit Germany after two or three weeks we had a meeting in the um, sort of a Zoom meeting of course at the time and uh, the, the people from the distribution department of Zeit were sitting there and I, I've never seen them with their faces so white because they said well you know the stores are closed down airports closed down the train stations closed down we don't know where to sell the paper and there was a meeting where I, I left the meeting, well, leaving the meeting, of course, I turned down the laptop in my kitchen, and I thought, well, if this goes on like that, well, what am I going to do at the end of the year? I mean, that was the vibe in, in like early April. And then we had the same meeting shortly afterwards, and the same people had, you know, a color back in their faces. And they said, well, you know, there's two things happening well, the, from the distribution side. One thing was, well, of course, digital subscriptions are going up, you know, tremendously, which wasn't that much of a surprise because people had to stay at home. But then they also said, well, we, the printed newsstand sales are going up as well. And everyone in the room, uh, the room, everyone on the Zoom call was like, oh, how's that? And said, oh, it's the supermarkets. Um, the supermarkets had started getting more requests from their customers because everybody spent so much time in the supermarkets that they ordered more of the copies. So that's when sort of the, the things go, went on, and um, it's pretty crazy. I mean, Zeit has reached by now its highest circulation since it was founded in 1946. We're selling um, 500 and nearly 590,000 copies every week, up from 400,000 copies 20 years ago. 
And so, yeah, so, so I am, op I can't be anything else but optimistic. But Jeremy, also, I visited Mug Culture in kind of a rainy day earlier this, this year, actually. And it, how did it feel for you to, to be classed as an essential business? Did you feel like an essential business at the time? It you were one of the few doors that, you know, were, were, was open on that uh, stretch of street when I came uh, to visit you. We always you. feel like an essential business. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're selling print magazines to a, a very loyal and dedicated audience. So, but yeah, technically, we, we, we managed to squeeze into the newsstand category in this country, and we were allowed to stay open. Realistically, in, in, in fact, we weren't letting customers in, but we were doing click and collect using online. But we found, I mean, I'm going to add to the upbeat feel again, because we found we're busier than ever. I mean, we, in both supply and in demand, more people are launching little independent small magazines of their own, perhaps because they had more time, uh, no social life, nowhere to go. They, they got that project out of their hearts and into, into the shops. And people want to read more. I think, you know, again and again, you hear about how things have shifted, jumped ahead 10 years. And part of that, of course, is that instead of just, you know, working, relying on computers for work and going home and probably watching some stuff on Netflix, now you're absolutely on Zoom. And then you're not, you're not even moving your room or your screen. You're then entertaining yourself on the same screen. People want time away from that, and people are buying magazines to give themselves a few hours on a Saturday afternoon away. So we're busier than ever. That was Christoph Armand there and Jeremy Leslie talking to Tom Edwards and Chiara Rimella. And now a very interesting panel with Clarissa Ward, CNN's chief international correspondent. Clarissa, tell us what it was like for you being in Afghanistan at that time of such major change. Well, I think sometimes as a correspondent, you have the privilege of having a front row seat on history in the making, and, and this was one of those rare instances. We had been in Afghanistan already for two weeks. It was clear that the Taliban was on the ascent, but no one could have predicted such a, the, you know, the fact that Kabul fell in a matter of hours with hardly a shot fired. And so you found yourself in this sort of dizzying position as a journalist, having covered this conflict for well over a decade of what do we do? Do we go out on the streets? Are they going to try to hurt us? Are they going to try to kidnap us? What do we wear? How do we speak to them? But it was also a tremendously exciting moment because you did. We got up the next morning and we went out on the streets and we put cameras in their faces and asked them lots of questions. And they were very keen to talk as well because they had a message that they wanted to deliver to the world. So it was surreal, but also on a journalistic level, very exciting and on a human level, very desperate. And I mean, that's not obviously the first time you've been in that kind of situation. Uh, you won awards for your, your work in Aleppo in, in, and in Syria. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this now for over 15 years, and I've covered many different conflicts, um, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, I lived in Lebanon for years. I was in Georgia in 2008 during the Russian incursion. I was kidnapped in Ukraine by pro-Russian separatists. So I've been doing it for a long time, but I will say that it, it's a really unusual moment where you are just watching this epic scene unfold. And as the days went by in Afghanistan and we saw Kandahar fall and we saw Herat fall and then they were at the gates of Kabul, and then we saw all the police and military in the streets of Kabul took their uniforms off. They were still manning their checkpoints, but they took their uniforms off. 
and you had this moment of realizing this is actually going to happen. After 20 years, in a matter of days, Afghanistan is going to be under the control of the Taliban again. And what an extraordinary thing just in the weeks leading up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I mean, just, uh, yeah, I've never seen anything quite like that. And do you feel some kind of responsibility in, in being there to witness this, to, to write the first draft or report on the first draft of history as possibly one of the only Western voices? I think there's always a huge sense of responsibility whenever you're telling someone else's story. You want to make sure that you get it right. And you want to make sure that you're doing justice by the people who are experiencing this and who don't get to just hop on a plane at the end of it and go back home. And so for me, that's a, that's a really awesome sense of responsibility. And am I talking to the right voices? And am I making sure that those voices get a platform? And am I bearing witness to this moment? And it can be different in different contexts. In, in Syria, sometimes, it was just about sitting down with someone who had lost a loved one or whatever it might be and just letting them weep or talk. And it might not even end up on the evening news, but just to have the act of a journalist sitting there and listening and bearing witness and, and sharing that moment can be a sort of cathartic experience uh, in and of itself, I think, for, for, for people in these situations. So it's not just about getting the product on television and, and getting the best the best version that you can out there. It's also about, I think, being a human being as well and understanding that what for you as a journalist might be tremendously exciting for people on the ground might be devastating. How have you seen it change your work over the last 15, 20 years? Well, there's a lot more women doing it now, which is great. <laughs> um, but it's changed enormously as well because the power of social media, which I found, uh, you know, I thought the last panel was super interesting, but from a journalist's perspective, the power of social media has been enormous because it's allowed for a much greater vibrant diversity of voices, which I think was definitely needed, and it's also allowed for citizen journalism. So what Hafez al-Assad was able to get away with in the 1980s in Hama, Bashar al-Assad, well, he was able to get away with it but he wasn't able to get away with it without the world knowing about mm. it because there were people in those protests every single week holding their cell phones in the sky and capturing the massacres that were taking place. And so that's opened a tremendous amount of opportunity for journalists, but it's also come with some downsides, I would say, because there is perhaps been an inclination in some newsrooms that, well, this whole business of foreign correspondence is very expensive, and if we have people on the ground with their cell phones who can do it for free, basically, and then we can be in London and tell the story from here, then why wouldn't we do it that way? And I would argue that, you know, you need both. You need both things. Um, so I, I think there's been a lot of change in terms of, of how we aggregate information. It's also presented enormous challenges in terms of how we verify information. There is a huge amount of misinformation and disinformation out there, and it's very challenging as a journalist to try to wade through it all and see what you can independently verify and ultimately publish. Thank you, Clarissa. Always very inspiring. Finally on the show, the always excellent and insightful Peter York on the battle for public service broadcasting.
Now, we're going to talk a bit about the battle for public service broadcasting, and we've actually alluded to this or addressed it explicitly, frequently already. Your book, which you have uh, a copy here, which we will also be signing, along with your co-author, is about looking at this through, through the prism, of course, of the BBC here in the UK, but of course, relevant globally. Let's set the table, first of all. What is the BBC? Because if you believe certain... I don't know, maybe right-leaning, somewhat illiberal newspapers in this country. It's a bizarre leftist monoculture. That's not the case. What is it, as, in, in your view? Anybody who works at the BBC will have a hard, hollow laugh at what the Mail or the Express says about an ever-growing totalitarian Marxist culture Anybody who's met the higher command of the BBC, which is not totally unlike the best bits of Whitehall, you know, centre everything, rather bureaucratic cast of mind, but very high-minded, but it's certainly not a cannibalistic, satanistic, Marxist festering nest. The BBC is, is not what those people say. Well, the main thing about the BBC is it's publicly owned, not government owned. It, I mean, very, very, it's publicly financed, not government financed. It doesn't come off the budget of central government. We pay for it through the license fee and we own it. And that's a very important distinction. But the curious constitution of the BBC, which goes back to 1922 and then 1927 when it became a public body, means that governments have an extraordinary amount of power over it if they choose to exercise it, and that's through funds, because government has a number of ways of influencing the BBC, and funding is the most important. And at the moment, this government and its predecessors have had their fingers on the BBC's financial windpipe. And that is the most important way of defining the peril the BBC is currently in. Because the BBC is in peril. A lot of people don't understand that, don't recognize that. If you were to follow right-wing comedians on YouTube, you wouldn't problem what problem. But there is a terrible problem. The BBC's real funding has slipped by 30% between 2010 and 2020. These are the calculations a very sensible and middling body called the voice of the listener and viewer. Worse is to come. There is Nardine Dorries. There is worse is to come. But it's, it's very fascinating. The BBC is in peril. Most people don't know it. If we lose it, we'd never get it back. And then we would be in peril. Now, I know that Monaco is absolutely fixated in Zurich. The University of Zurich, magnificent institution, did a study across the Western world looking at the relativity of national vulnerability to misinformation, and it set out the factors that make nations more or less vulnerable to misinformation. Having a strong publicly owned, publicly financed, 
public service broadcaster was one of the things which made a nation more resistant to disinformation, online disinformation. Thank you, Peter. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And before we go, a little song for you. Because, you know, we that work in the media, it's all about expressing ourselves and showing the news to you. So this is Madonna, Express Yourself. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Music